Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we will read verses 10 through 17. Please stand as we read the word of the Lord. Now, I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now, I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas, and I am of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not sacrificed for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except uh, Crispus and Gaius, so that none would say that you were baptized in my name. Now, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, today we're going to talk about the Corinthian church. Uh, A few things we want to need to know about the Corinthian church is that they were an immature church. Um, They had uh, a lot of zeal and excitement, but they were immature about it. Now, what does that mean? Um, How many of you know a seminary student? (laughs) I've spent a lot of time in seminaries in my day, and I can tell you, uh, if you have a seminary friend, uh, unfriend them on Facebook so you can stay friends with them. <laughs> because you will see pictures of uh, large stacks of books. It's like, ooh, got a lot of reading this semester, which is code for, look how smart I am. I'm going to read all these books. And you're not going to read them because you're not smart enough. Or they will say, oh, I'm sorry, I've got to study for my Hebrew test. Uh, Hebrew, I'm learning. Uh, and you're not. But I am. And so I've got to go study for it. Uh, what do I mean by this? They're, they're filled with zeal. They're excited to serve the Lord. But as they start receiving knowledge, they start to get kind of proud about it. They kind of think that the knowledge has something to do with them. And it starts becoming a part of who they are. This knowledge is mine. Uh, no one has ever learned Hebrew before but me. 
And so they start getting this kind of attitude of uh, there's this really high amount of knowledge that I have and um, I am kind enough to talk to you and to maybe share some with you if you're lucky. Maybe I'll do a, a, a Sunday school for you because that's how magnanimous I am. So what does immaturity do? Immaturity makes you think that you are special when someone has given you the thing that makes you you. It is as if someone dumps a million dollars into your bank account and you walk around saying, well, I'm rich. I have worked hard for my money. And uh, now look what I've done. Um, obviously, what we see here in, in the first chapter is, uh, is a group of men who are really excited about, the new, about this about this God called Yahweh, who sent his son. And they got excited about all the intricate details of that. And then they made it about themselves. And Paul exhorts them. Look at verse 10. Now I exhort you, brethren. Okay? So what we see in the first part is he is addressing his family. You've heard people call each other brother, right? Sister. Have you thought about what that means? Um, sometimes I don't think we do. This is not just something Christians say. That's a, Christian, a Christianese uh, way of addressing each other. Uh, when we start saying brother and sister and talking about our fathers who have taught us things. Um, this is family talk. Paul is not being sarcastic with the term brother. Um, he is not trying to be um, a jerk about it and say, okay, brothers, uh, I got something to talk to you about. He's concerned for his brothers, for his family. I want you to notice how he addresses them. He addresses them in his authority because he addresses them by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, what I'm about to tell you isn't just my opinion. This is from the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm speaking on the authority of Christ to you right now, brother. Now, as I go through these passages, I just want you to understand what I'm going to tell you today is not... Uh, amazing. It's not something new. Uh, probably if you read through this, you would get all these details. Um, so I'm not saying anything special today, but I think at the end of what I have to say, um, I think it's what we need today. Because these two points are the two points I really want you to really pay attention to. Paul is talking to his family, his brothers, men he loves. He's not using the word brothers because he's about to say something mean, and so he tries to soften it with the word brothers. He's talking to his family. And he speaks to them with the authority of Christ. 
And so this is the exhortation. I exhort you, brothers, and I'm exhorting you with the authority of Christ. And what is now the command? We have a command next. He says, this is my exhortation, that you all agree. That you all agree. That there's no divisions among you. but that you are made complete. When there are divisions in the family, you're not complete. It is when we all agree as a family that we are complete. And what does that look like? Well, it looks like everyone having the same mind and the same judgment. Same mind and the same judgment. If you look, this word complete here said that you be made complete. If you look at the uh, Greek there, it's talking about being knitted together. Being knitted together. I want you to think about your own biological family. I want you to think about uh, have you ever seen in a movie or a TV show or something and um, there's this big family reunion or maybe everyone just lives near each other and everyone really does care for each other. Sure, they fight, they have these little squabbles every once in a while, but in the end, they really, you see this care for each other and you watch that and um, it might be a dumb movie, it might even be a Hallmark movie. That's right, I said it. And no one I know wants to admit to that. But you're watching this movie, and no matter how corny it is, or how predictable the plot is, when you see that family knitted together, you watch it because you're envying it. That maybe your biological family is not knitted together. And you really wish you were. You wish that you weren't competing in your family. You wished that there was a love there. That you really could fight and have a real knockdown, drag out fight because you know no one's ever gonna leave the family. No one's ever gonna ignore the other one or walk away. You know that they're gonna stay knitted together so that you can fight. That kind of a family. Not the kind of family that you avoid fighting because you know somebody's going to walk away. That's not knitted. Paul is admonishing the family of God. And he's saying, for you to be knitted together, I want you to have the same mind and the same judgment. This is how family works. In other words, if you think that you're really brothers and sisters in Christ and you can maintain your divisions at the same time, if you really think that's what's happening, then you're mistaken because you're not a family right now. He's saying you are not knitted. You are to be in the family of God 
and none of you are acting like it. You're acting like everyone is their own independent island. How do we know this? Because he goes in to talking about what the real problem is. So he talks about the problem. He heard from Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you. And this shouldn't be in a family. What are the quarrels? The quarrels are pretty deep. This is what he means. Verse 12. Some of them are saying, I am of Paul. And some are saying, I am of Apollos. Others are saying, I am of Cephas. And then the really, really spiritual ones are saying, oh, wait, no, I am of Christ. That's how, you know, you guys pick people. I, I pick Christ, so I win, right? That's the, that's the idea. And they're using these men as ways to create divisions among them. Now, this is the interesting part. Just in case you didn't think this was interesting yet, I will inform you, here's the interesting part. Uh, they're not committing heresy. Whenever someone in the church is committing some kind of heresy, some kind of false doctrine, some kind of false teaching, Paul addresses it, right? Colossians was written because someone was saying Jesus Christ was not eternal. He was not the Son of God. So Colossians is written. Someone's been saying this. You are to not listen. You are to reject that person because this is, and then he goes on to an entire argument as to how Christ is God on earth. But he does not address any particular teaching. In fact, this is, most commentaries are uh, perplexed over this. Why wouldn't he go into what the arguments are? What were the people of Paul saying? What were the people of Apollos saying? What about the ones that said, I am of Cephas? What was that argument? What about the ones who said, I am of Christ? Maybe they had a really good argument. Maybe we could just listen to all four different arguments and maybe find the best one and say, oh, the guys who said, I am of Paul, they were wrong. It turns out Cephas was right, and who knows who he is? But Paul doesn't even address what the, even, even the quarrels were. What were the arguments? It's possible that the arguments weren't even bad theology. But they were using theology to create divisions. In other words, even if this theology was right on, some good orthodox stuff, Paul didn't even care about that. They are using theology to dress up their arguments so that they can have divisions, so they can compete with each other, so that they can say, I have this idea that is the idea you all should follow. In fact, it's such a good idea, even Paul said this. You know, I was baptized by Paul. And so you really should be listening to what I have to say. And someone else might say, well, I am of Apollos. And Apollos was, I mean, he was a great speaker. I mean, he really understood how to drive home the idea and just really reach your heart in a special way. And this is what he said. And, I, and if you don't follow Apollos, I mean, I think, you know, I, I believe Apollos baptized one of my kids. So uh, you really need to listen to me. And so and so it goes. And so Paul 
gives some uh, questions here. He asks a question, is Christ, has Christ been divided? Why is he asking that? Has Christ been divided? He even starts asking other really strange questions. He says, you know, did, did Paul sacrifice himself for you? Did, were you baptized under Paul's name? What is all this about? Why would you try to divide Christ? Do you really think you are of Christ when you're divided? Now, isn't it true, as we're going through this, um, maybe some of you, this might be nagging on you. But what is it they were arguing about? I mean, isn't it possible that the guy who said, I am of, I am of Paul, really had a good point? And people need to listen to this. And yeah, maybe we shouldn't be divided. I get it, I get it. But what were the arguments? Because maybe someone had the answer that we all need to listen to. How come Paul doesn't care? It seems that Paul doesn't care because he is helping them fight a delusion. We all understand what a delusion is, right? Um, if you're a parent, you understand delusions. Uh, kids, when they're really young, have these bizarre ideas, right? Uh, my little kids have this bizarre idea that anything can be purchased by me. And so, you know, we'll go buy a really cool building and they'll say, we need to buy that. <laughs> or we'll, you know, it doesn't matter. I think, I believe Jude still thinks we can buy the sun. And, uh, I mean, who knows if it's for sale. Uh, but they think that I have this special power where I can merely purchase things as we walk by it. Um, and maybe as kids grow up to be teenagers, I mean, maybe they still think that. Maybe they still think that. Some of those of you that have teenagers might believe that. Um, but as we grow older, we find as we get in the teens that we have other ideas. I remember when I was a teenager, uh, I thought, I'm going to grow up and I'm going to be a police officer because I have seen enough police officer movies that were pretty cool. And I wanted to live that life of being a really cool police officer, uh, you know, maybe in New York City where all the action is and all that sort of thing. Um, and uh, I was under the delusion, well, two delusions. Number one, that that's really what being a police officer is like, what you see in the movies. And number two, uh, that I would have the intestinal fortitude to be a police officer ever in my life. So I don't think uh, that would have worked. But, but we, we make these delusions, right? And we can make fun of kids who have these delusions, but we have them too, don't we? We have delusions. We delude ourselves, right? And we do it all the time. We might say something to someone that for a split second we realize, ooh, that was kind of jerky. But then we have some justification that goes on, right? Oh, but they didn't really understand that. And, you know, I really didn't mean that. And we start justifying ourselves into a delusion. Right? We delude ourselves into thinking that if we have some kind of information that's some, kind, some way theological or some kind of an idea that way, and someone else doesn't, 
that perhaps we need to convert them to our side, even if it causes some kind of division. Because in our idea, division is what cleanses the church when someone has an idea I don't like. And we go on our campaigns. Paul's idea is that when you have a church that is divided, uh, you are not acting like a family, and you're under the delusion that Christ can be divided, that we can divide Christ into pieces. Man's teaching makes you special, we somehow think. Man's reputation is of use to us. Man's cleverness of speech is what will help us win over others. What we don't think is that we are nothing. And unity in Christ is our goal as a family. So what does Paul, excuse me, what does Paul think is the cure to this problem? As we keep reading through 1 Corinthians, we see all these little stutters in the Corinthian church. And it all comes down to this idea that those in the church still see themselves as individuals. Special people with special ideas, right? So we have, um, as you go through, uh, you have in the second chapter of Corinthians, you have people saying, oh, well, I understand you know, Greek philosophy really well, and I understand uh, wisdom that this world has really well. And Paul says, no, nope. no, nope, there's only one real wisdom. And as you keep going, you say, well, there's, there's people that have liberty in Christ. I have this special liberty, and these people don't have liberty. And you know, if these people you know, over here that don't feel they're, they have the liberty to do things I feel I can do, too bad for them. Paul goes, nope. Just give up that part of what you think you're free in in front of them and help them. And then we get into 1 Corinthians 13. And we see a, an entire manifestation of everything Paul is trying to get at here. Let me read to you a little bit of 1 Corinthians 13. I know you typically hear this in a wedding. And as you hear these words in a wedding, you're pretty sure that the two up front have no idea what these words are going to mean. <laughs> um, right now, they're really attracted to each other, and that's what love is. <laughs> Eventually, they might return to 1 Corinthians 13 and go, oh, well, that's hard, <laughs> right? Um, look at verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 13. Um, and it's not, hard, it's not a, a difficult thing to say that 1 Corinthians 13 really is the crescendo of the, of the book, um, of the epistle. Because up until then, he's talking about you're quarreling over this, you're quarreling over that, you're quarreling over what you think you're free to do and what this person doesn't feel free to do and that you should be able to do whatever you want and forget this guy and you have all this stuff going on. And then when he talks about spiritual gifts, 
And like, I have this really cool spiritual gift, but all you really know how to do is this. And then you got people say, well, I don't know what my spiritual gift is. I guess I just don't have a gift. Because once you have a gift, then you have to do something, right? And Paul is addressing all this immaturity. So much immaturity. And what's the cure for immaturity? 1 Corinthians 13. He starts off the book talking, or that chapter, talking about what he is without love. He's nothing. Verse 4. So what is love like? Well, love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. I want you to look closely at verse 7. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Verse 7 should sober anyone who is either married or thinking about it. Why? Well, because when early in your marriage, when everyone's attracted to each other and hormones are racing, being patient and kind is easy peasy, right? But as time goes on and you start realizing that not only have you married a sinner, but you're one too. And you have two sinners that are now hooked together for life. And you realize there's going to be times where this person is going to disappoint me in a fundamental way. And there's times where you will disappoint your mate in a fundamental way. I don't mean you had a bad day and you may have yelled. I mean in a way that you get to the end of that fight and you think, who is this person? And verse 7 should be screaming in your brain. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. When you have a fight with your spouse and you are about 90% sure you're right and they still don't see it. I mean, they are so selfish that they don't see that you are actually right on this one. This time anyway. You're right and they're the selfish one. And you have fought it was not resolved. And all day, what are you thinking? All day. All day, you are thinking thoughts like, 
I can't believe they're thinking, they're, they acted this way to me. I can't believe. I mean, are they even a Christian? I mean, if they, if they really knew the Lord, wouldn't they see that I am, I am the victim here? I can't believe how terrible that person is. And we start building up in our mind, right? We are not believing all things. We're not believing the best of that person. We're not thinking in our minds that, well, I know uh, they said this, but, and then we begin defending them in our mind. No, we don't defend. They're the enemy. We don't defend them. We're not believing all things. We're, not, we're certainly not hoping all things. We're not thinking that, you know, I know that the Lord is in them. I've seen all these wonderful things. And you know what? Um, I should think about why they are acting this way. What is going on with me? Have I hoped all things? Do I hope in them? Am I defending them in my mind? Let me repeat that one more time. Is my love for this person causing me to defend them in my mind? Or am I condemning them in my mind by not believing all things, by not hoping all things, and certainly not enduring anything? This is the thing that Paul is talking about that love does. Here you have a church that it's wor- that's working on its maturity. It has found ways to cause divisions within itself. Because you have a church of people that are competing. They do not see themselves as a family. They do not see themselves as working with each other because this is who we have. This is who the Lord has given us to be our family. Instead, we are believing bad things about each other. We are not hoping anything about each other. In fact, it doesn't take much to cause us to stop enduring. My, uh, one of my uh, uh, teachers over at Westminster Theological Seminary um, had a thesis. He said that there is one man um, throughout all of church history that has affected the church more than any one single person ever has. And he said, and he's not even a theologian. The man that has affected, particularly the American church, more than any other human, single person in all of church history, is a man named Henry Ford. Now you might say to yourself, self? (laughs) I don't get it. Did Henry Ford, uh, did he have a church? Was he a pastor? If you recall, Henry Ford's the guy that invented, uh, was it the Model T, anybody? Thank you. My wife is from Detroit, so. I mean the nice part. Um, 
And, uh, and so he invents this uh, machine that makes it so that um, if you're at a church presently that um, you no longer want to suffer with, um, you have a vehicle that literally can bring you uh, anywhere else. There was a time where whoever it was or wherever it was you were, um, that's it. I mean, you had a horse and carriage, and uh, even if you got up at three in the morning, you wouldn't make it to the next town to go to their church, so you were stuck. You were stuck. So even if you were done enduring, if you wanted to go to church, you were going to have to go back to family and make it, make it work. So my question to us today, with all that is going on in our world, we live at a bizarre time. I think people that lived uh, during uh, the different periods of time that were really strange, I think people living during World War II would look at us and go, oh wow, glad I'm back here during World War II. <laughs> I mean, we have some very crazy things going on. There's incredible amounts of injustice. Incredible amounts of things we can all have very strong opinions on. And um, maybe a lot of those opinions are really great. Maybe you have some really good opinions on what's going on right now and how to fix it or what really, you really put the finger, your finger on what is the real problem. Are we going to let that interfere with our family? When I was in the military, uh, I was stationed... Uh, far, far away. Uh, I was kind of a homebody, and uh, when I went into the military, my hope was to be stationed uh, in Illinois, where I could be just four hours away from my parents. Uh, that didn't work out, and I ended up in Germany, a little, a little further away. Um, I felt completely alone. Um, I was from a Baptist family, so uh, I uh, did not go out drinking with anyone else. And it was probably good because I have no self-control, so that would have probably been disastrous. Another thing that saved me is the taste of alcohol is terrible. I'm sorry. It's just, I can't. But my point is this. If you don't go out and party with everybody else and get sloppy drunk, there is nothing else to do. And it's really hard to make friends. And I was completely alone in that place. I was in a foreign country, didn't know the language. The only friend I had was my roommate, uh, who I had to, uh, <laughs> every Friday night, I had to find him 
um, and drag him back to his bed so that no one steals his wallet or uh, does some horrible thing to him because he was unconscious most of the time. And so that was my life. And a man named uh, Tim Cavanaugh, I always called him Sergeant Cavanaugh, was, uh, became my sergeant in charge of me. And he was like a father to me. Um, I don't think, at that time anyway, our politics were the same. He definitely was not a Christian. <laughs> definitely not a Christian. Uh, we disagreed on a lot of things. But I loved him. There were times where he was rude to me. There were times where he yelled at me, and it actually wasn't my fault. But he was, a fa- he was like a father to me. And so you know what I did? I got over it because I love him. Because when you are in a family, your love for each other is all that matters even if you disagree on something or you feel someone has wronged you. Because love does not take into account wrong suffered. Love is not provoked. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but it rejoices in the truth. You may have found some really good knowledge on the internet. You may have found someone that says some stuff that speaks to you. Great. The person that wrote that has no responsibility over you. May not even know you. The person that you get that information from has not stayed up nights thinking about you and stressed over you. The person that wrote that information or had that really good sermon that you watched on the internet has not been the one who has thought about you and has considered you and wondered what's best for you. And even if, in a human way, has not been perfect, has wept over you because God has given him authority over you. And he cares about your soul and has done more in the day for you than you have even thought about him. One thing you learn as an elder is the work and the frustration and the heartbreaking pain of being a pastor of a church. Where you do and do and do and you worry and you work and you sacrifice and you sacrifice, you leave the house at eight o'clock at night away from your family that you haven't seen all day for somebody else. And guess what that means to someone in the congregation? 
It means something to them at that moment, but you just wait a month, they'll forget all about it. Because we still think we can be a family and remain with divisions among us. We think we can still maintain the phrase, family of God, and my church family. And we get to use those terms while maintaining our divisions because we keep track of wrong. We don't justify the other person in our mind. We justify ourselves. We don't think about the sacrifice of our pastor. We think about us. We are not bearing all things. We're not believing all things. We're not hoping all things. And endurance is short. I can go into great detail to you about all the stories I have about what it looks like when the leadership stops caring for its congregation. In fact, you don't have to go far. Find a megachurch in which there are thousands of people in which the head pastor has no idea who those people are anymore. And he hires other pastors to take care of all that work of dealing with those people. He's now the professional speaker. You don't have a pastor like that. You may not know what it's like to be attacked by leadership. You may know what it's like to be pursued by leadership because they have lost sleep over you, because they love you and they care for you. Those of you with children know what it's like to insert yourself into the lives of your children and they hate it. They resent you for it, but you're doing it because you love them and you are afraid for them. You have knowledge of where their life is going, and you know that if you don't interfere, you are really not loving them at all. You want to see parents that don't love their children? Watch the parents that sit there while their children scream and shriek in, in Walmart or at a restaurant, and they don't do anything because they're these powerless people that can't insert themselves into their children's lives. That's hate. You want to see love? Love's what we're doing, right? In our congregation where we're inserting ourselves in the, into the lives of our children because we love them. What does your children think you're doing? Your children think that you're just using your authority, that you're not giving them any freedom. You're pushing your authority on them and it's not fair, and they can't wait to be free again. Tell me these aren't ideas that have come across our minds as adults because of the work of a church. We are working on our maturity. And there's a cure 
It's loving each other as a family. Where even when we feel some kind of pain, uh, where someone has done something that we feel might have been a slight against us, we say, you know what? They're okay. When uh, we got two more recruits, um, where my, uh, that were under my sergeant, it wasn't just him and I anymore. Now we had two more people that came in. And Sergeant Kavanaugh was having one of his mornings. Uh, if you catch him before his first cigarette, it's not a good day. And uh, they did. And they said, what is his problem? I said, just, he's okay. He's okay. Just let him have his first cigarette. <laughs> I made excuses for him. Why? Because I loved him. And I understood what was really going on in his heart. Because he and I were a family. Do you stick up for, your, for the authority of the church that way? Do you stick up for each other that way? Do you stick up for each other in your mind? Are you bearing all things in your mind? for the sake of your brothers and sisters in our congregation, our family? Are you hoping all things? Are you enduring all things for our family? COVID should be bringing us closer together as a family. The stupidity of the leaders that are running different parts of our country should be drawing us together. Why isn't it? Why isn't it? Why have we decided to stop sticking up for each other in our minds, at home, with our children, with our wives, with our husbands, why have we not chosen to endure all things for the sake of our family? Why have we not tried to even put ourselves in the shoes of a man that has to face us every Sunday? Who loves us so much that he's willing to get involved in our lives? Are we going to act like young people, and say, you know, everyone's just trying to get into our lives. And Are we going to let the same words that come out of our teenagers' mouths come out of ours? Or are we going to say, you know what? He's okay. They're okay. She's okay. I love them. They said something or did something together in our congregation? Do we stick up for each other because we love each other that much? I hope so. I am telling you, I have been in a lot of different congregations because of the way we've had to move around so much in our, in our lives. And if you are interested in being in a family, this is it. I am telling you, this is it. Yes, there are other churches that you can go and you can disappear into the congregation and you can skip 
and you can do stuff and no one will notice because no one cares and Sunday can be your little thing you do but if you want to be in a family this is it please I beg you in the name of Jesus Christ love your family love your family stick up for them in your mind Stick up for them at home. Stick up for them with your children, with your wives, with your husbands. Don't keep track of wrongs. Keep track of their love for you. Compete with each other in how much you love each other. If you want to compete, outdo each other with how much you love each other. If someone invites you over, invite them over twice to your house. If someone made a really good dinner, make them a good dinner and dessert. Show them that you can love them better than they can love you and just keep competing. That would be great. Let the love of God dwell in us richly. Let's pray.